EFTM Tech Cars Lifestyle This is the EFTM Podcast with Trevor Long EFTM Welcome, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Great to have your company on the EFTM Podcast. Uh, a couple of weeks off, appreciate your patience. Uh, we were in America for the Apple event, and last week I had just such a busy week, a massive show with the Today Show. I think we had the three electric cars uh, on the Wednesday, and that means on the Tuesday I had to spend pretty much all day driving cars around, back and forth, Ubering to get cars <laughs> to one location. It's not like when you're a kid and you could grab your brother or your sister's bike and you could ride two bikes at the same time. Remember that? Can't do that with cars, I've noticed. So that uh, that led to a busy one last week and, and made it difficult to get the show done. So uh, we'll get back to normal next week uh, once I'm back in town because I'm in Las Vegas uh, today, this week, uh, with Stig. We are here covering Remars. Now, I'd heard of this event. I'm pretty sure I got some announcements from it and stuff uh, in 2019, but it's an Amazon event. So Amazon Technologies, which essentially encompasses all of Amazon, uh, put on this event about robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and space. That's what uh, Mars stands for, machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, and space. And so it's quite, it's quite an interesting showcase of Amazon Technologies, but it's also a look to the future. And a, it's like WWDC, it's a developers kind of thing. It's an event where you know, if you're into those areas, uh, you want to come along and see what's happening. Uh, it originally started as a private event. Uh, Jeff Bezos would have this Mars event, um, literally invitation only to you know exclusive people in the in the game in the industry, uh, and then they opened it up in 2019 and made it a, a an event that uh, people in the industry could uh, could come to. And then COVID struck. No, no no event for two years, and now it's back on. And we're here at the Aria uh, Convention Center in Las Vegas, and they have set up a dedicated podcast studio. So we're going to go down to that studio and record a couple of interviews. Basically, this show is all about Remars. Uh, I've got some great people to talk to, um, and you'll learn about everything from artificial intelligence and machine learning with Alexa. And you might think it sounds nerdy, but I, I think you'll be fascinated. Um, there's racing cars, albeit a little bit different. There's space, uh, and there's even space tourism. There is a lot to cover. Uh, and so, back to back, a bunch of great interviews here on um, on the EFTM podcast. As the people from Amazon text me and say, "Where are you? What are you doing?" Uh, and uh, and we love love your feedback. And next week we'll be back. So if you've got any tech questions, tech problems, as always, go to the website eftm.com. This is the EFTM podcast. EFTM. Well, it's wonderful to be in Las Vegas. And one of the things we're going to do across this show is we're going to catch up with a bunch of people from Amazon about a whole range of different things that Amazon's doing. But I want to kick it off talking a little bit deep into Alexa's capabilities. And I'm joined by Dr. Prem Natarajan, who's the vice president of Alexa AI and the head of NLU at Amazon. Before we go anywhere, I need to know what NLU is. It's the most important part of your title. I feel like it's, it's being buried in the lead. Yeah, it's a natural language understanding. But uh, in this context, it actually uh, refers to spoken language understanding and dialogue systems, and it's a kind of broadly conversational AI. But wouldn't that be one of the most important parts of the Alexa? Because in essence, Alexa's goal is to understand what it's being asked, and and then turn that into a, you know, an answer for the for the person who who asked that question. Yeah, and indeed it is. Yeah, uh, and indeed that's what I find most exciting about what we do. Um, there are many elements of that are very important for Alexa, anyways. Yeah. But conversational AI, especially the uh, speech recognition, natural language understanding, so kind of transcribing what you said, that is speech recognition, mm. uh, interpreting what was transcribed, yes, uh, that's natural language understanding, connecting what was interpreted. You know, maybe you said something like, play some song by some artist. Yes. Right? Uh, now that song is some real world entity Right? You have to connect that to some catalog somewhere mm. right? to then go take action to play it. And maybe the same song name has two different artists, and that's where the artist information allows you to disambiguate which one it is. That connection into grounding into the real world, we call entity resolution. Right. right? So ER or entity resolution is another important thing. Uh, and then there may be many other co contextual uh, pieces of information that come in and 
uh, figuring out things that are more ambiguous and yeah. we'll talk about and it. And does that does that in part also involve just the simple things like when you stumble around your request for Alexa, um, the, the system, the back end needs to go, well, this part of what was said was the stumble. The rest of it was the actual question that I asked of Alexa and that's where the power of what you do behind the scenes it comes into play. Yeah, and that's an area in which, uh, actually, I love that question because that's an area in which we're uh, trying to pay more attention to, in fact. Uh, so obviously, things that we do where, you know, where you say where there's some disfluency, that's what we call mm. it, you know, disfluency, where the speech is not fluent, but, you know, there's maybe pauses or, like, something, you're searching mm. for words, or, or you even mispronounce some things, right? Uh, because you don't know what the correct pronunciation yep. is. Um, so, when you, like, Shanghai or Shang-Chi, like, you know, what is the, mm. the right way to say it? A lot of people don't know. And so you have to understand it. But we do a couple of different things there, Trevor. One is we have something called self-learning uh, that runs automatically out in the field. It learns without any human intervention. So uh, when, whenever it senses some, something went uh, was incorrect, it then learns from long series of interactions mm. what the correct interpretation might be and it automatically rewrites things to give you the correct interpretation. So if your speech- And is that happening across users? So if I'm making a lot of those um, misinterpretations or I'm forcing them, yeah. um, is my, my, my mistakes and Alexa's learning from me then helping other people at the same time or is it very much about the individual? No, it's both. In fact, the more powerful thing is where we learn mistakes across populations and then apply it to the rest of the population, right? Yeah, right. And so, you know, for example, you may ask it to play some station, and you use a name that's a colloquial name for that station, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then, some of us will rephrase that request with the right answer, mm -hmm. and you can actually use AI to detect. Oh, you know, the first thing and the second thing are actually an equivalence class because there are so many different people who asked for the same thing in the same way, mm. and then when the response was not satisfying, they asked for it in this other way. I think this is the same thing. Right. And I'm now going to learn that they're the same thing, but then I can actually test it out in the field once or twice, and if, if people accept that answer, now I know I've learned something useful. And so it's like a series of A-B testing that's going on automatically. automatically. The, yeah. It's not like you have a meeting every three weeks with the yeah. Australian team going, these Aussies keep doing this, we should probably do that. Indeed. It's just learning in the background and, and continually improving. It's learning in the background, it's no human intervention yeah, right. at all. Right. In fact, even the understanding of whether I learned it correctly happens as part of the same framework. You can, because if you think about it, if I try some new interpretation and that is that, unsatisfying, that I know fails. that I didn't learn right. right yeah. So I'm going to keep learning. And so is that, by definition, artificial intelligence? That's one aspect of it. Maybe here's where, you know, if you will indulge me, yeah. I'll talk about my framing. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give you some framing around my conversation around artificial intelligence. Because I have a problem with the term. I feel like it's a buzzword for some companies, and I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to that genuinely works in artificial intelligence. <laughs> the example is I've been to you know, TV companies and places like that where they say there's artificial intelligence built in, and I'm thinking, I don't think the TV has artificial intelligence. I think you might have used artificial intelligence to build the product, but I don't think it's actually learning mm. along the way. Whereas you have a system and are working on systems that are genuinely evolving yeah. their knowledge. Yes. Is that is that the correct way of looking at artificial it, intelligence? It, it is true. So there is a there's an aspect of artificial intelligence where you design something, you put it into a product and you put it out. But in my mind, especially looking into the future, a critical aspect of artificial intelligence is that it should be able to learn on mm. its own. Mm. That it's once it's out in the world, it's not a static kind of thing that is somehow limited to what its original designers conceived of, hmm. but that it's able to learn through its interactions with the real world. It's also able to learn that the world is changing, right? And so uh, this is where, you know, I was saying, I tend to look at where we are as the threshold of what I like to think of as the age of self in AI, hmm. right? Where uh, AIs will become more self-aware. And self-awareness here, I mean a combination of two things. One is, what is the state of the world? The lights are on, the time of day. Yep. Uh, is it winter or you know, summer, uh, spring, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, second aspect of this is reasoning. 
So I'm aware about my context, and I can kind of do, uh, I can reason about it. Example is, um, if you come and say, you know, Alexa, turn on the lights. If if it's if it knows the state of the lights, you know, even though I didn't specify which light it is, it should be able to figure out, hey, these lights are on. I don't need to send one, that uh, command. Yeah. And, or like when I say, and this is something you already experience uh, if you have a smart home uh, configured with Alexa. Uh, you know, and I discovered it myself. Uh, you know, I, I set up a good night routine. And when I say good night, Alexa, do the following sequence of mm. things. Now, locking our front door was not something that I asked it to do, but it, our home just happens to have a smart front smart lock for our front door. Mm. One night, as I was saying good night, Alexa, she said, "Your front door is unlocked. Do you want me to lock it?" This goes back to your first question: <laughs> Does it learn from others and use it to help? People. So because other people are using good night routines, they've got to, a to, similar lock product, etc. Yeah. Or when they say good night, their doors might always be locked. Mm. And it just, and it, I asked me. A second aspect of the age of self, in my mind, is self-learning. Right. This is the one you and I were just talking about, right? The fact that it continues to learn. This learning can be two ways. It can be implicit, like the one that I just described. It's observing these changes. It's learning from these, learning how to recast interpretations, mm -hmm. etc. A second aspect of self-learning can be uh, more uh, explicit teaching by the user, right? Um, we launched something called Teachable AI in Alexa last year. Uh, before we launched Teachable AI, if you maybe had a smart thermostat and you asked Alexa to set the temperature to cozy mode, she said, I don't know what to do that. <laughs> what's cozy? Yeah. What's cozy, Eric? But she wouldn't even say what's cozy. I and also one person's cozy is another person's comfortable. Right? That's the key thing. Right? That the same thing means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. So now I can teach Alexa what it means to me. So now Alexa will come back and say, I don't know what cozy mode is. Can you teach me? Right. And you'll say, cozy mode is 72 degrees. Now, you might have a fight with your spouse or partner. And say, <laughs> no, it's 67 degrees. No, it's 74 <laughs> degrees. That's a different matter, right? But you get to set it to 72 degrees. The next time you ask it to set it to cozy mode, it's good. You know, you can imagine this extending, set the lights to reading mode. Or uh, as one kid uh, told me, wanted to set Alexa, uh, wanted Alexa to set the light to spooky mode <laughs> at Thanksgiving, which happened to be 10% brightness, right. right? And so these kinds of cool things that make fun. The last aspect I'll say of the age of self, the three key pillars in my mind is self-service. This is really about the democratization of AI, right? Where we want to break down the barriers to the use, to using the powers of AI mm. uh, by making it possible for people who don't have any AI expertise but have clear conceptions of the experiences and features that they want to deliver mm. to end users. So we do that by putting out, putting out low-code development frameworks like Alexa Conversations, which is, we can talk about it later, but uh, you can check it out on the web too. Mm. Greatly reduces the amount of code, novel code, that you have to write also greatly reduces the amount of data you need to bring right. to get the performance you and, need. And is that about introducing more of that conversational back and forth? Yeah. Um, because sometimes you ask a question and you get an answer that's not 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 entirely satisfactory. It might not complete the question essentially. Um, and so the idea is that you feel a little bit more comfortable having a conversation with the static ambient device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, some of the newer experiences you will see with Alexa, and you should come to the um, uh, the keynote tomorrow morning that my colleague Rohit will be yep. uh, presenting. Uh, you'll see some uh, newer experiences around multi-turn. But one thing I'll say is a multi-turn uh, conversations, as in like not just you know uh, ask and receive kind mm. of things, but like more uh, engage. That we're seeing an increase. People are uh, wanting to, and so developing those kinds of multi-turn. A simple example of multi-turn is a game. Yeah, right. Like like a Jeopardy game. Like, but but there are more interesting multi-turn things where you might because have it's kind of gone viral in the last five or six months too. The whole um, what is it, the twenty questions thing or six questions? I can't remember yeah, yeah. What, what it is, but you know where you you you, th you think of something and and yeah, Alexa's yeah. working it out. That kind of uh, depth, but also those experiences to me feel really important for the growth of Alexa. You know, the engagement for Alexa. If Alexa sits in someone's house and is used for playing the radio in the morning, maybe turning one light off and nothing else, yeah, yeah. then the experience is 
is lost on that person. You, know, that, you kind of want that person to learn more and experience more from the product. So those kind of games or experiences begin to make people realize it can be a two-way conversation and that's where you want to go with this right you want want people to feel it's comfortable yeah. with Alexa no, I'd in say the home. to me engagement is a symptom of a more fundamental thing that we are after which is delivering true satisfaction to the end user yeah. right so when we deliver when we provide more and more everyday conveniences uh, to the user and their everyday life tell me about my recipes walk me through how mm-hmm. to cook this etc those things when you deliver that value to the end user, engagement follows. Yeah, right? We see this all the time. Yep. So uh, rather than think about it as, oh, this will increase engagement or that will increase, yeah, this will satisfy the customer. Like, this is a core to our working backward thing. This will deliver to them the convenience that they're looking for. Hmm. And then engagement will follow. Which also goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is the the learning. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The learning does the same thing, right? If indeed, if the experience is better and delivers the results someone's seeking because of the way they say it or whatever it is, because yeah. of the learning that's come in, their engagement will be higher and their satisfaction will be higher. Um, the AI thing, the only the only thing that I guess comes up with all of that, you know, fascinating and and super insightful conversation around AI, AI is the negative com- connotations that come from AI. You know, a lot of people like to talk about machines and you know, having AI, AI and coming to life. But in reality, the there's no negative to AI in a, in a world of Alexa, is there? I mean, we're talking about a product that simply, you know, turns lights on and off and, and you know, uh, gives us information. Is there a limitation to, to where AI can go in your world? Is it is it another part of the world? You know, maybe we talk to the robotics no, people about AI and, and no, we do potential think about, concerns. In fact, um, uh, tomorrow... Uh, Trevor, I'll be hosting a session on uh, uh, inclusive and accessible uh, Alexa. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, I think um, any technology uh, that is sort of ubiquitously useful, mm-hmm. most technologies are. Internet is ubiquitously yep. useful, and uh, and you know auto automatic transmission cars are ubiquitously. Yes. So any technology that is broadly useful uh, has a responsible aspect to it. Right. Uh, so when we are serving up information, uh, we want to make sure that you know you're making it equally accessible to everyone, mm-hmm. uniformly accessible. People can get it. That it's locally relevant. That is appropriately, you know, contextually relevant to the locations you're in, etc. Mm-hmm. So we do put a lot of thought into those kinds of things. Right. So uh, music and some of those things are where we started, but that's not where things are right no. now. Right. Even. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Alexa Prize, for example. Yeah. Right? The Alexa Prize is something we launched four years ago. Uh, we were now in its fifth year. And uh, it's about uh, social bot, you know, open chatbot conversations. Audio. It's, a, it's a competition where we fund university teams to advance the state of the science and conversational mm. AI. Yep. And it's completely open to them. Like they develop these things, uh, Alexa customers engage with them. And some of those things are you know, very long. Some of those average conversation lengths, you know, the, the, the moonshot there is a 20-minute conversation that the user finds satisfying. Right? That's the conversational AI moonshot we're pursuing with the Alexa Prize. Wow, yeah. and, but we've made huge progress in terms of the lengths of times, the average durations of times people are engaging with these chatbots. And they're talking about all kinds of things. And in fact, sometimes some of these chatbots, they make their own attempts at being funny. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes they fall flat, yeah. just like humans do. Yep. Uh, other times they're hilariously funny, just like humans are. Two things come to mind uh, that, that I really want to chat with you about quickly before we wrap up. Uh, one of them is the moon. The other one is, is uh, localization. Let's talk localization. You know, we've talked about how it can learn, and I think you, you briefly mentioned that that happens in a, in a kind of regional state. You know, there's no point learning from the way Aussies interpret or talk yep. and implementing that in America. Two very different places, despite the language similarities. Um, how important is the the localization of of the product and the learnings? Because I think, in personal opinion, um, Alexa's uh, got the leadership space in, in Australia because of that. You know that f- familiarity, the some of the fun stuff that's implemented, which is very much uh, programmed in. But I think some of those other learnings is that is that a known. Um, I guess approach to to creating true localization so that it feels like a a representative product in in every market you're in. Yeah, in fact, it's a very explicit focus for us, Trevor. We take great pride in the local the optimization of the localized experience of Alexa mm. in every location we're in. 
right? So we invest in every location that that it's a, it's its own product, yep. almost in a way. So the technology, the AI technology, is universal, right? But its manifestation and instantiation for that local market. I mean, this comes again. It all comes back to our working backwards thing, right? The focus on the customer you're serving. Hmm. You know, the customer cohorts in Australia are different than the customer cohorts in India. Yeah. Right. They have different expectations. They find different things funny. They may even have different opinions about cricket, for all yeah. I know. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so you have to be able to uh, uh, do that. And, you know, even uh, things like holiday versus vacation. Yeah. It means one thing in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah. In the U.K. and yeah. uh, Australia. Uh, you know, some of the things that uh, surprised me. You know, like uh, uh, my uh, mom was just day before yesterday. Uh, they're with us, you know, the COVID thing, I've asked them to stay with us, you know, et cetera. And so uh, she was asking me about the day for the Raksha Bandhan in India, you know, the where the brothers tie a okay. string. Yep. Uh, and I said, let's find out. So I went to my Alexa device, very confidently said, <laughs> Alexa, when is Raksha Bandhan this year? And she came back and said, August 11th is Raksha Bandhan. She pronounced it in her own way yes. as Raksha Bandhan. But, but so... That kind of thing. So now, because we have localized it for India, those delightful experiences are available to people who share that culture worldwide. Yeah, right. So localization, surprisingly enough in my mind, is a two-way thing. Every time, one thing we've discovered, Trevor, every time we do something we think is for a specific set of people or a specific geography, we end up discovering that the delight ends up being worldwide. Uh-huh. Because there's no such thing as just this thing that's just there. Predominantly there maybe, but not only there. Well, I think the next thing you need to do is um, demonstrate to your mother what a bachelor's handbag is, which is the, <laughs> the localization that was created recently for Australia, which was a fun one. Um, just finally, the, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, um, Remars has a, a strong focus in a lot of areas, space being one of them. Alexa, you know, going to the moon. It's a fascinating concept. Yeah. What, what, what do you want to get out of that project uh, of seeing Alexa as a part of a, a space mission? I, uh, there are two things that, like, and I happen to use this phrase, moonshot, Right? So I think conversational AI is one of the hardest AI problems that is out there because human language is fundamentally unconstrained. Right? We're very creative, very inventive, so we'll come up with new ways of saying the same thing, mm. and we all, God knows we do, yeah. right? Uh, and then we can even debate that there are different things. Even but So that's one thing. And you know, space has long been like kind of this aspirational frontier mm. for it. So in my, to me, in my, you know, the way I look at it, there are there is the frontier of AI, which is conversational AI. It embodies all the many, many challenges, reasoning, common sense, all of that are part of the future of conversational AI. And then there is space, which is like, you know, understanding the universe and pushing forward. To me, somehow, the coming together of these things is super exciting from mm-hmm. that fundamental science perspective, that here are through frontier problems that we are trying to go after. Yeah. And they're coming together in this way where one provides the layman access to information about the other yeah right so to me that's kind of what inspires me on that that's exciting thank you for your time thank you trevor fun talking with you Well, continuing my little uh, tour around the Amazon Remars uh, conference this week uh, on the EFTM podcast, and we're in the uh, the Remars podcast studio today, and I'm joined by not a man who's daunting me at all because he's a retired major general uh, with decades of experience in in the uh, in the military, uh, Mr. Clint Crozier. He's here. He's the director of aerospace and satellite for Amazon Web Services. Now, I've got to say, yeah. straight off the bat, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Is this a job you ever thought you would have? Um, it's it's a job that I dreamed of, uh, and I've spent the last 33 years flying satellites and launching rockets in the U.S. Air Force. I had the enormous opportunity my last two years on active duty to be the lead architect and planner of creating the U.S. Space Force, the wow. first new military service in the U.S. in 72 years. Um, and so I've been able to do a lot of wonderful things. Uh, this job is perfect. This yeah. is the dream job. This is all about applying cloud technology to space, aerospace, and geospatial companies and helping propel them forward with the innovation that the cloud enables. Because one of the things that, and I think the the general public don't really have an appreciation for AWS, Amazon Web Services, but it essentially powers a large part of the internet. Let's be clear, you know, a lot of what you do on the internet 
is just interacting with Amazon Web Services. But what you're saying is that through uh, space and satellite technologies, companies can not only use the Amazon Cloud, but they can use satellite services and and com- combine them with the cloud to benefit their business or create new applications that That's humankind exactly right. doesn't know about. That's exactly right. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Here, here's what people generally don't understand or are aware of. And when you talk through some of these things, they, they're uh, typically pretty impressed. So I'll give mm. it a try, right? So do you know uh, that when you leave here today, if you went to run your credit card in an ATM, you couldn't get money out of the ATM without GPS? You can't get gas in the United States and most other countries by paying the credit card at the pump. You can't get gas in your car without GPS. I had no idea GPS had a role in either of those two things. Well, the global timing signal. So GPS is navigation and timing. And so that's the universal standard for international banking, for international monetary transfer, for most electric and power production companies and capabilities. And so that timing standard is critical to allowing our uh, international economy to function. So without the GPS satellite constellation that I used to command, by the way, uh, at one point in my career, I commanded the organization that ran the GPS constellation. But without that space data, you couldn't do any of those things. And there's so many more. Because GPS, uh, the average person thinks of it as, um, you know, how do I get from A to B? And And it does that. And let's be clear, the the advances in that over the last decade, let alone more, are phenomenal for the average person. That's right. But that system uh, underpinning uh, so much of what we do um, makes it makes it a really critical part of any business or any any future growth because what we need to do is I guess capitalize on that technology that is seen as being this you know this other world literally yeah, yeah. Um, but actually it plays a, a critical role in what we do here every day every minute uh, every transaction that's right we we call we have a line of effort at AWS and the business that I have the the privilege to run the global aerospace and space business we have a line of effort we call making the world a better place from space. And wow. I'll give you a couple examples. And I'll take you back home to Australia, if you don't yeah. mind. Right? So we're working with one company in Australia called Exe. It used to be called Fireball, right? right. But, but they're called Exe now. And the reason that they were called Fireball is they are using space data each and every day. And they are monitoring remote areas in Australia and other parts of the world for the outbreak of forest fires. And so they are reviewing 20, uh, two and a half million images a day in real time. And they They've developed the capability running AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning on the AWS platform to identify the outbreak of a forest fire or a remote fire within three minutes of ignition. Wow. And think about when you can vector in a response uh, crew within three minutes of an outbreak mm. rather than three days, what a big difference that makes. And that's Because we, we, we that's think about medical today. incidents as, a, as a, a response time is critical to, you know, um, someone surviving a heart attack and those kind of things. Absolutely. It's just as critical in response time when it comes to the outbreak of a bushfire. Let's catch the bushfire when it's small rather than when it's burned so out of control. when you say, what, how many images? 20,000? Uh, uh, two and a half million images two and a, half a day. They're collecting images a day. satellite data from satellite companies all over the world and they're running AIML processes on it to identify where they see heat signatures that give the indication of And that's the critical term, fire. right? Because... Uh, you know, and again, I don't look at satellite images other than Google Earth, but, you know, uh, real-time satellite images would change in an instant because there's a, there's a car there, That's there's a person there. That's why you have to there. look at two and a half million images a day. You have to constantly be ingesting those. And it's so much data, Trevor, so much data that only the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning can process through all that data and do what we call change detection People just can't do that in that scope of data with that limited amount of time. And, you know, anyone who's watched movies knows that the military, for example, they go, well, we've got to look at the satellite over that area to see whether there's big movement of troops or whatever. But essentially, this is a, a company looking at a, a an everyday real-world application of that kind Making of concept. Making the world a better place from space. From space. Each and every day. I'll give you another example. We support a company called FarmBot, which is operating out of Australia. FarmBot, and it's exactly what you might think. They're using space capability robots satellites to help the agriculture and ag tech industry. They're using satellite data and uh, digital processing to uh, put sensors on 
pipelines, troughs, watering systems, and they're doing real-time monitoring of large swaths of land over a large part of territory, and they've been able to reduce on-demand water consumption by 90% because they can track in real-time the levels, the drought, the rainfall, the amount of water that's in a tank, the amount of water that's in a pipeline, and crop production and development in real-time. So that's another great use of space capability to affect the way we live life here on Earth. Companies right out of Australia. Where does... Amazon sit in that uh, equation. Now, I understand AWS, it's cloud. Let's let's just talk about as a cloud for the, for the average user. But then you've got the, the satellite, you've got the, the camera on the satellite that's taking the imagery. Is Amazon just the connector between, you know, a, a space uh, company that has a satellite and a farm bot who wants to use it and you're helping them work together and, and create right. the connection between the two? That's right, because when you build on the common AWS platform, right, common data standards, common architectures, common application layers, what that really allows is... It allows anybody that's building on that platform to share data in real time, share large amounts of data, and to manage workloads together, right? Millions of images processed within seconds, all passed back and forth between the company that operates the satellite, farm bot that's using it to identify where there's water issues, et cetera. And AWS is the integrator, the application layer, bringing all of that together. So where does um, does Amazon have, for example, ground stations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that are part of the satellite infrastructure? And again, my, my knowledge here is very limited, but, you know, we have a big couple of ground stations in, in, in Sydney. Um, Optus uh, has, a, has a huge satellite link up and the ground station where it all comes yeah. back down to. Where does Amazon's role in the, the physical part of space come yeah. in? So the basic proposition of the cloud, as you might very well know, is if you're a tech company, don't go spend millions and millions of dollars building out your own infrastructure and processing capabilities. Mm. Use ours, pay by the minute for only what you use. Mm. We extended that to space. So I've been flying satellites for 35 years. If I'm a space company and I want to develop a new satellite system, I have to go out and spend precious limited capital before I've ever built a satellite to build out a ground infrastructure so mm. that I've got global stations that can talk to that satellite right. all over the world. can cost 10, 20, 30, 100 million dollars to build a ground station out. Or you can use AWS's global ground station infrastructure, pay by the minute that you use on the antenna co- to connect with your satellite. Mm. And so we've built a global distribution of ground stations around the world, one of which is in Sydney, as you rightly pointed out. We've got one in Seoul as we look at the Asia Pacific. And what's really valuable is not only do customers save 60 to 80% of their infrastructure costs by managing minute by minute on the antenna, but just as important, In real time, as soon as that data comes down from the satellite, because our ground stations are co-located with our data centers, that data is ported directly into the AWS cloud. And now, in real time, you've got some 220 cloud-based services, artificial intelligence, machine learning, advanced data analytics, that you can run real time on that data to provide your customers enhancements and improvements. So it's it's not about Amazon launching the the rocket and the satellite. It's about Amazon providing the the back end to what comes from any advance, any creation that the companies in aerospace uh, uh, have. That that's right. So me, thirty three years flying satellites and launching rockets, and I'll be honest with you. Until two years ago, as I was looking at joining AWS, I didn't have a good appreciation of what the cloud was, or more importantly, mm. how the cloud could be valuable to the space industry. And right. frankly. Most leaders in the space industry two, three years ago didn't have that understanding either. So what we've built with this uh, global aerospace and satellite business is we brought together a team of experts with experience like me in every facet, whether it's launching rockets, flying satellites, operating ground stations. And because of that team that we put together, we can sit down with space companies, understanding deeply their mission, and then coupled with our deep experience in running the most robust and capable cloud infrastructure in the world. And when you bring those two things together, it allows space companies to innovate in a way that they never could. I'll give you one more example. Leo Labs Australia. Leo Labs is a company that does space traffic management in low Earth orbit. There are tens of thousands of objects, satellites and debris on orbit, 
And the good news today, the probability of collision is very small. But every industry expert you talk to tell you that we will increase by 10x the mm. number of objects on orbit in the next five to 10 years. That by 10x increases the probability of potential collisions. And most satellites are operating in what we call useful orbits, which mm. put them in proximity to each other. Leo Labs is running the global analysis of 10,000 objects against 10,000 objects and the probability of them colliding within a 24-hour period. They were doing all that work on their own on-premises computer systems, and it took them about uh, eight hours to do that 24-hour run. They moved all that to the AWS cloud, and now instead of eight hours, they run that global collision uh, perturbation study. Instead of eight hours, they do it in 10 seconds. Wow. You thought I was going to say minutes. I did. <laughs> and, and, and I set you up. And, and then so, so what that allows you, uh, if it takes you eight hours to run and you identify a probability of collision, Leo Labs Australia will call a company and say, hey, you've got a collision in eight hours. And the company will rightly say, okay, do I maneuver up, down, left, right? Mm. I mean, we have terms for it, yep. but that's basically it. And the answer would be, we'll get back to you in eight hours because <laughs> it takes eight hours to run it. Yep. Now, in the span of a single phone call, the company can say, do I maneuver up, down, left, right? And Leo Lab says, stand by. They do four uh, runs simultaneously in about a minute. And in the span of a phone call, we'll give you the best maneuvering course to reduce the probability of collision or intercept. It's fascinating and only available because of the advanced speed on the AWS cloud of our processing capability. You've mentioned a couple of times a term that most people listening might never have heard, which is fly satellites. Yeah. Um, I've had the fortune of, of visiting, it was the Optus facility at Belrose, uh, where I witnessed someone fly a satellite. Oh, and it, it opened my eyes to the great. fact that there was this um, space in which a satellite is meant to be, and mm -hmm. at times they, they veer, they move, and someone is in charge of ensuring that happens. Is that all? Has that been for your career one of the things that you've always had to explain to people yes. that, you know, yes. they're and like, that, dude, okay. it's up there. You're not, you no, know. And that's okay. But you're absolutely right. First of all, I mean, it's a very delicate set of highly technical capabilities, right? We talk about a million consecutive miracles to get a rocket, a rocket to launch successfully. Yeah. And then did the satellite survive the launch? And now does it deploy its solar arrays and do its batteries yeah, come yeah. on and all those things? So part of flying a satellite is simply going up on the satellite periodically and looking at all the what we call telemetry data points. Mm -hmm. Are the batteries healthy? Are yep. the solar arrays working? Are the transmitters Just like in the when right? you get in your car and a light stays on, you're meant to pay attention exactly to that light. Exactly you know? the same thing. And so we do on-orbit servicing of our mm. satellites every day to make sure they're functioning. But then there's the point that you made. We put them in orbit, but orbits are tricky and satellites don't always stay where they're supposed to. They naturally drift if they're in geo-orbit, we call it. Or if it's in LEO, it's going around the world two or three times a day. Mm. So there are always things you need to do to make sure it's pointed the right way, it's it's uh, supporting the right users, it's in the right orbital slot, which is governed by uh, the International Telecommunications Union, by the way. You mm -hmm. have to get an orbital slot assigned to you yep. to be able to operate a satellite. So you have to take care of all those things to keep the satellite operating effectively. When man landed on the moon, it was probably the most, uh, you know, the biggest news story in, in decades. It had yeah. the world's attention. Yeah. And I feel like since then, you know, space lost its its... It's aura, you know, it's it's excitement. I have an 11-year-old daughter who wants to be an astronaut. And I, I feel like space has come back. I do too. Is this the most exciting time since man landed on the moon without for space? Question. Yeah, without question. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, the things you're seeing right now today about more astronauts than ever before uh, going into orbit, private astronauts. So mm. we partner with a company called Axiom Space. Axiom won the first ever contract that NASA has ever awarded to build a commercial module of the International Space Station. It's always been a government procurement, yeah. but the commercial space industry has prospered so much. Now NASA realizes it's better to let companies like Axiom build the module and yeah. operate it, and they put their money in something else. And so Axiom sent the first uh, all-private astronaut mission to the International Space Station back in April, mm. and that was really game-changing. I also want to tell you... Uh, the other thing that was really interesting about that mission, hmm. and I'll break some news here, if we can hold on to this for a couple of days, yeah. I'll talk to you about what we can do here with uh, with this picture here. Tell me. Tell me about it. I'm, I'm looking at uh, clearly an object in space because it's, it's a beautiful photo because I can see the, the curvature of the so, Earth from so space. So not One releasable of those fantastic until things. Thursday when we publicly announce yep. this. But on Thursday when we publicly announcement, we're going to announce that we uh, partnered with Axiom Space. AWS has known and been known for our track record in pushing cloud computing and edge computing devices further and further uh, closer 
closer and closer to the workloads, right? Yep. So the more, rather than bringing the data to the cloud, you bring the cloud to the data. You took the safe. cloud to the cloud? We took the cloud. <laughs> you took the cloud past the cloud. So we have pushed the edge, we have pushed cloud computing to the edge here on the earth for a decade, bringing those workloads closer to the data so that users save time, save money, increase uh, efficiency and innovation. We have users now who are growing their missions in space to the point that it requires on orbit. Because essentially computing. for the average Joe, and it, we've done edge that. computing is about saying, look, you've got this cloud and it's really powerful, but there's this there's this transitional time between your premise and where that cloud is happening. So what you do is you bring some of the, the computing power back on premise. That's right. And well, so what you're telling me is that this device that, that went to space took computing power essentially that's right, that's to, right. to the to the people that needed it most it's called a snow cone and it's an edge computing capability it provides edge computing storage and processing and so instead of porting uh, the data from a science experience uh, experiment down to the earth and then waiting for 20 hours mm. while it's processed on the ground and then send it back just so the astronauts know which knobs to turn on the next yes. experiment they can do it on orbit now without ever having to transmit that data down to the earth because they've got the uh, edge computing and storage and analysis capability on orbit. And so it's really going to change the way we do in space activities. We're and talking about something the size out. of a couple of baked dinners. It's so not I've got one right in front of me. This is called a snow cone, and it's about it's less than five pounds in weight and less for your uh, listeners, less than the size of a shoebox. Yep. And here's a picture of it uh, yeah. on orbit on the International Space Station against the limb of the Earth being operated by our Axiom private astronauts as we open a new era that I think is going to unleash a whole new set of innovation in space as we bring edge computing into space on orbit, mm. in this case, on the International Space Station. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal advance. Is that what, what, what then gives you the excitement for space into the future? Is it the revisiting the moon? Is it Mars? What, what's the thing that makes a man who's lived space all your life, essentially, um, what's the future that excites you most? Well, there's two pieces. You know, I talked about the making a world a better place from space. We yeah. are seeing more and more use cases every month, every year about the ways that we're using space data today to improve life here on Earth, yeah. whether it's maritime safety. We've got one company we support out of the United Kingdom, Commonwealth country, uh, who's using space data to measure uh, thermal readings of man-made objects on the earth to help manage climate change and climate wow. control. Ten years ago, we'd never thought of that. So I'm really excited about all the ways we're seeing space data used to make life here on earth better, because mm -hmm. oftentimes people say it's really great and exciting about what we're doing out there, but what about life here on earth? Well, space is providing more capability and value and benefit than ever before. But the second piece is we are living in an historic time, where, as you said, we have the opportunity, NASA and its 13-member consortium is going, international consortium, going back to the moon with mm. the Artemis project and then moving on to uh, set up a human encampment in Mars. We are going to learn things about our universe in that uh, environment that we could never learn here on Earth. And all those things require uh, edge computing closer to the workload. Uh, we're operating the NASA uh, uh, Perseverance rover, which is on the surface of yeah. Mars right now today. It's collecting soil samples. All that data is coming back to Earth and being processed in the AWS cloud and then sent back to Mars. So we're sending data on a 300 million mile uh, journey, and we have to do it that way today. <laughs> today, from but Mars the future, to the Earth. Um, in the future, we don't make that 300 so million mile So the rovers track. of the future will, will carry with them edge computing that will Absolutely. Um, minimize the and time required. Of, and think about the mission today. When that rover collects data, it sends the data 300 million miles back to the Earth. Let's call it 18 or 24 hours. That rover is sitting idle not doing yeah. anything for 24 hours until it gets the next set of commands. What about if you can do that in 20 minutes on the platform, mm. you can increase by nearly 100% the science life, the science time on the surface mm. of the planet by providing uh, edge computing capabilities at the workload instead of back on Earth. Would you, if the big boss called and said, we're sending Blue Origin up again, would you take the invite? Would yes. you go? Yes. There's an instant. You didn't even... <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah. The only thing I was thinking about is my wife, I don't think, is in your listening range today. Yeah, that's uh, good. So that's the only yeah. thought I had in initially, but the answer is yes. What, what and don't tell her. What, is, it, is it the view? Is it the... 
the, uh, the, I, the majesty of it, you know, that, you know, I think it's the excitement. I think in every time in history, right, all the way back to, you know, Copernicus and those who were trying to understand if the earth revolved around the sun or vice versa, mm. I think human beings have naturally been curious when we look up at the sky, at the stars and the sun and the moon, have, uh, just there's something in us mm. that, that makes us want to go learn about what's out there. And I suppose that's in me too. And I would love to be able to do that. I think it's in everyone and um, you're probably closer than most of us. And it's a f- like for me, uh, talking to you, the most fascinating thing is uh, you've had such a distinguished career. You- you've worked with technologies in your career that at the time you probably couldn't even talk about. And, and then, True. you know, really gra- the-, the people around you, your-, your family really wouldn't have grasped the impact of. And now you're seeing those technologies become part of human mainstream yeah. uh, and, and you're a part of the team that's pushing the boundaries. That's, I think that's a really exciting thing. And, you know, again, and not to suggest that you're, you're anywhere near the end of your career, but it, it feels like an amazing second chapter it really uh, does for, for a man of, of your history. It, it does for me. What I love is in the military, of course, uh, I, I focused on what we call national security space or military yeah. space and all those missions, intelligence, reconnaissance, etc. And we still support those missions for the U.S. government and allied governments around the globe. But what I love about this job is for the first time ever, I get to delve into Mars exploration. I get to delve into how agriculture companies yeah. are using your day space to improve can, food. Your day contain a meet may contain a meeting about the Mars rover and later a bushfire uh, uh, detection in Australia. Yeah, I mean, and then before dinner, an update on how we're uh, warning uh, ship uh, operators in Cali- off the coast of California about endangered whales moving their way into the shipping lanes. It's awesome. Fascinating. Um, Clint Crozier, a retired Major General. Um, fascinating job. Fascinating life. Um, feels like a book. That should be written at some point. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thanks for letting us talk to you about what we're doing in space. It's so exciting, and we appreciate being on today. Good thank on you, mate. You. Cheers. Thanks. EFTN. You're listening to the EFTN podcast. EFTN. Well, my time here at the Amazon Remars show continues, um, but it is a it's an action paced fast uh, fast uh, event because I'm only here for a couple of days before we head back home. Um, and we're seeing so much. I know you're just hearing back-to-back interviews here on the show, but I'm seeing so many great things from robots to, uh, to implementations of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, plus all the great space things here. But I'm back in the, uh, the podcast studio here at Amazon Remars, and I'm joined by Brathan Ratsaho, who's the Vice President of Machine Learning Services at Amazon. Now, Brathan, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's go simple. Let's keep it really simple. How do you describe machine learning to people? So machine learning is something that lets computers learn human-like capabilities and get better over time. How does it differ to artificial intelligence, for example? We spoke earlier to, to um, Prem, who you know, talks about artificial intelligence with Alexa. What's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Uh, so machine learning is th- it's a way for computers to learn from data and then look at past historical patterns and then try to predict the future. And then AI is kind of a subset of that where we put it in use in some of our services that are, you know, that let you do things like uh, computer vision, that let you do things like natural language processing. So it's kind of a subset of that that lets you do some of these human-like capabilities. And I think the the thing that stood out to me was looking at, you know, previous data sets and doing predictive work. So... Is that where, and obviously there would be huge amounts of things that you do that the general public wouldn't see or hear about, but I'm a massive Formula One fan. So mm-hmm. I think there's a part of sponsorship, but there's also a, a deep uh, integration with the, with the sport. You know, you're watching the sport and there's all these things about, you know, predictions about when they're going to pass, predictions about when things are going to happen. That's your work at play in a live real world environment. Yes. Uh, Formula One is one of them. Swimming Australia actually uses machine learning as well. So Swimming Australia has taken, has built a data lake on top of AWS, and then they use machine learning to do various kinds of predictions. For example, you know, predicting 
what kind of relay teams would be most effective and oh, some tactical wow. winning strategies we have other such um, examples bundesliga the german football league they use machine learning so when a player is let's say making a pass based on historical data of how that has gone they can predict what will happen wow we have a similar thing in the national football league in uh, in the us the nfl where you know let's say the quarterback is throwing the ball and they can look at the past historical data to say you know is this going to happen so we are seeing a lot of this machine learning being taken up across the world of sports software yeah. entertainment media financial services um and you know i'm sure the swimming australia example would be well, something that resonates I, with you i mean let's let's think about the swimming cuz swimming's one of those strange sports that um you know every, uh, lots of kids get into swimming but as a sport as a spectator sport australians are so deep into it every four two to four years commonwealth yeah. games or olympic games we are fanatical about it yeah. and the relays are a fascinating example to me because you know um women's 4x100 you know men's 4x100 those kind of events where we sometimes dominate you think like we think as viewers that they go oh well you know these are the four best but in fact what you're saying is they're taking data from you know the years of events that each of those swimmers do over the course of trials and other world champs and things like that and all of that data sits in what you call a data lake um, yeah. which is obviously a, a weird term for a swimming <laughs> <laughs> a swimming subset of data but uh, it's a set of information set of data um you know people's time splits um splits based on being first second third or fourth yeah. in the relay and it sits there and then you're saying that during the event essentially they might choose the day before to analyze the data and go actually we're better off with that combination and and yes and they are looking at all of the historical data that you've collected and obviously the more data you collect the yeah. more analysis you can do and you know they're taking the data from trials from practice from previous competitions and then doing all of this analysis and you know we we it's one of the really interesting uses of machine learning in sports and just how it impacts mm. how you can make your daily life much more efficient because you would actually think that uh, a human um endeavor like swimming okay there's frankly no technology in the physical sport other than maybe the swimsuits but if you compare that to formula 1 um formula 1 there are um probabilities of failure of, of the machinery the tires things like that whereas with swimming it's really just about the individuals and how they're paired and the and the different legs and things but if you look at your work in formula 1 again for a, for a good example for me um your that that data level is there challenges from the people who are established in the sport you know who it used to be a human thing a human used to go well we've got to do this because of that i remember this happening really you're coming in over the top of of established knowledge and saying actually we've got a wealth of data you really need to trust in the science and if you if you take a step back the way the human was doing it was also using experience yeah. like the human was looking at you know what has happened in the past and they were using their analytical abilities and then they were saying you know this is what we think will work best yes. now if you take that same level of if you take that same data and then if you treat a machine learning model and that machine learning model just kind of learns similarly and is able to make predictions in the same way and so what this means is now you've also made the human a lot more productive because you know they can f- you can use the machine learning model make those predictions and mm. ultimately you can still have the human verify it so yes. you know it's a really nice aid in making us in helping us make decisions in all kinds of things you know um formula 1 swimming australia but we also see that a lot in enterprises well it's just going to say the the sporting stuff we've talked about is obviously the the front facing um you know it's big branding and all those things but in reality that's just that's a that that'd be a slice of what you do and is it my understanding and again I'm not a a developer or a, a technical in that sense that obviously AWS I think of as being like a website, <laughs> web service, but there's so much to AWS that it's essentially like a a a, a subscription to turn on and turn off. Like if you're someone that has data and you want to begin to, you know, implement machine learning with it, you're essentially just saying with AWS, "No, I want to utilize this this thing you have, which is machine learning, and I want to implement it across my data set, yes. which may be completely unique. Your business, your field, may be completely unique yet yes. because your system is about analyzing and 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 understanding data doesn't matter what the data is yes so we at aws 
think of machine learning as targeting three different kinds of personas. One is people who say, hey, I want to just build my whole machine learning infrastructure and models and so on. And then, you know, we provide the most optimized components mm. for it. And then we have SageMaker, which says, you know, we at AWS build a machine learning infrastructure for you. And then you come in and do just build the models. And right. then we have our AI services where we say, we build the models for you. We build the infrastructure for you. Just like you said, just come in, bring yeah. your data and use machine learning. And we have today more than 100,000 customers using it. The vast majority of machine learning happens in AWS. And, you know, so some of our machine learning services like SageMaker is one of the fastest growing in the history of AWS. Wow. Now, to give you some examples of what you were saying, you know, we have Georgia Pacific. Georgia Pacific is, you know, one of the largest paper manufacturers. Huh. They use the historical data and they help their operators, you know, figure out what is the right speed at which those paper rolls should be rotating. Huh. And they have been able to reduce paper tears by 40%, improve paper quality by 40%. Wow. Then we have Coke Industries. Coke Industries is one of the largest private companies in the world. If you think of a piece of machinery, mm. when the machinery is about to break, it starts vibrating in a strange way. Huh. So we have a service called Monitron that detects abnormal vibrations using machine learning, and then it can predict when the machine is about because to Because, again, that's about saying at normal operating conditions, yes. it looks like this. Exactly. Over the course of time, we expect uh, you know things to loosen and, and, a, and a machine to, I guess, come into life. This That looks like this. And, and so your, you system, your system goes, well, hang on a minute. Yes. It, it, sh it, should, it shouldn't be at this point until a year old. So yes. why is it at this point early? And that might be uh, a preventative measure that the exactly. business can make. I mean, you're looking at, at the history of vibrations and then you say, hey, I noticed this anomaly. And then mm. you know what? The last time I noticed this anomaly, this thing was about to break. And yeah. so they have been able to find potential problems in you know the nitrogen producing facilities by using these services and do preventive maintenance and save a lot of downtime. Because in reality, there's not many businesses that aren't capable of using data to benefit themselves. Like I think of a, what a supermarket, seen, for yeah. example, right? There's no reason why a supermarket can't use their sales data based on time, date, all those things to just simply go on this given day, we need to be at this point with our stock levels. Yeah. Um, they might have um, sensor data. Let's not get too too detailed about, you know, the, the privacy concerns, but sensor data that says, you know, these aisles, not many people walk down them. Um, you know, and you, 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 you're analysing the data to determine how to best you know, change and evolve your business, things that you would have taken years to do 10 years ago. Yeah, forecasting. You know, we have, for example, an Amazon forecast service that lets you do that. You know, look at your data and then forecast what kind of, you know, goods you would need, forecast supply chain predictions and so mm. on and so forth. In retail, a lot of our customers like Discovery, for example, or um, Discovery is, of course, in media and entertainment. But in retail also, you use personalization, like Amazon.com, you know, yeah. looking at these are the things that you buy. Oh, it's the best example, really, isn't it, <laughs> of, of um, everyone who buys this really does buy this as well. Yeah, and frequently bought together items. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, this is really about if you look at data-driven companies, yes. This is really about reinventing yourself by using data so you can gather more insights and serve your customers better. How big do you need to be for data insights to play a role in your business? I think we have companies that are using data lakes or just data sizes of all varieties. You know, you can right. start from few megabytes to all the way up. The important thing is to get started. Right. And this is just transforming pretty much everything, you know, every sphere um, that you see. Yeah. So it's it's really about we you have models that can work on data of various yep. sizes, and so depending on what you have, you know, you can you can basically use it in a lot of use cases. Where does it go next? Um, because I feel like the power of of the AWS cloud is enabling things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, as we've talked about. Um, do you, do you have, I mean, is, are you using yourself to forecast where it's going to go? Like, can it forecast its own future? Because, you know, I, th I would assume that the things we're talking about right now, five years ago, w would have been dream world stuff, um, mainly mainly because of the compute power required. I think that's, is that actually the, the, the true benefit of the AWS services is you're, you're buying 
powerful compute capabilities that you simply don't have the money to do in a in a you know computer piece of software and a hardware sitting in your business. So there are three things that you're getting from AWS. One is what you said, which is the amount of compute and it's leading edge compute all the time, and you mm-hmm. don't have to kind of buy it and then you know, you, it stays in your yeah. data center. You can just rent it as you need. So this pay-as-you-go model that lets you rent the most powerful compute, that's extremely powerful. Mm. The second is the ability to store enormous amounts of data, right? And, you know, create these data lakes. And we have, you know, the S3, which is a data storage service, all of the database and analytics services. So data is the second part of it. And then the third part of it is all of the tooling that lets you analyze this data with the compute to make these predictions. And that is where the breadth and depth of our services helps you. And these services are purpose-built for different use cases, like forecasting, like industrial. Yeah, it's not a it's not a plug-and-play situation, is it? You don't just go, oh, I need forecasting for this kind of business. You're, you're literally saying, I, I, I want to use the cloud, then I want to add data, and then I'm going to build on top of that something for me. So we actually so you can do both. We actually have a forecasting service that you can just go in with your data and then start doing your forecasting. Wow. At the same time we also provide Because it's machine learning, it's smart enough to look at it and go I know what this is. Exactly. Right. And then we also have a situation where customers say, "You know what? I want to build my own models for forecasting." Mm. So we have a service that which is SageMaker where you can come in and build your own models. So if you have data science teams that can build their own models, go right. use it. If you just want to use it out of the box, then go use one of our services. Is it still uh, a hugely growing market? Because it's obviously you've talked about some massive businesses. There would be there would be companies that are using, I guess, other uh, similar services, I guess, discovering what, what might be better about AWS, but are there still companies discovering the power of data? Yes, so um, you know we are innovating at a very fast pace. Uh, we had you know, we launched more than two hundred capabilities last year. One of our services, which is SageMaker, is one of the fastest growing services in AWS history. Wow. The entire AI and ML portfolio is growing very fast. You know we have more than hundred thousand customers already, and we just started, hmm. you know, four five years back. So we are seeing a very broad based growth across every domain, across every geo. Yeah. Wow. I mean, for the average person, this kind of stuff doesn't impact them visually. They don't. They don't know it's there unless they're watching the swimming or the Formula One. You know, then you can kind of you can kind of get the sense that's where the data is coming from, right? But I think we we probably don't understand how much it is impacting our lives in when we go to the shops or when we when we um, open up a, a web page, whether it's a you know a streaming service or a you know shopping site. These these things that we're being shown are being shown because the data is there. There's a there's a reason for it, and your technology is reading that reason, um, and, and anticipating the, the need, and and essentially helping customers yeah. and consumers. In the end, that's what it is. It's about making the experience better for the customer, whether that's an individual on a retail site or a you know CEO running a, a huge business with data at the core. Absolutely. Like let's say if you were you know you went to the Discovery Channel, the Discovery Plus app. They use a machine learning technology, specifically personalization, to recommend what are the things that you might find interesting. So, you know, whether you're going there, whether you're going, you know, there's a lot of forecasting technology already talked about that's built on uh, what we do. Uh, Financial services, they use it a lot. Uh, for doing different kinds of predictions. Insurance companies, they use this, for example, for looking at where your homes are situated and predicting the right kind of insurance prices. Because insurance, um, you know, you you can look at a whole range of data about a person, a vehicle, a home, all those things to determine their, their risk. Um, in finance, you know, you could look at the same data and determine their their risk in terms of loans and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think the personalization thing is actually probably the other big place that people would see it but don't realize it, which is when I load Disney Plus or whatever the, you know, Discovery, all the different services, people don't realize that when I load it and you load it next to me, we're, we're almost never going to see the same thing. It's literally that personalized, isn't it? And the internet's becoming that way. Even Amazon.com is such that no two people see the same Amazon.com because why would you show me the same stuff as my wife? We buy different things. Same with streaming. That personalization is about machine learning, looking at the data of my habits, my viewing, and the viewing of people like me who've done similar things to try and 
guide me through my journey. Exactly. And, you know, it's saving you a lot of time that you otherwise would have to spend searching, you know, can you show me this kind yeah. of titles and do they have this? And this is really kind of in the background, just doing all of that so that ultimately we provide you a more immersive and a more entertaining customer experience. So going back to your previous question, at the end of the day, what we are seeing is that data-driven companies are growing more than 30% wow. per year. And so this is really about... How do you make yourself be able to serve your customers by using insights from your data? Mm. And, you know, every company has a history of transactions. This is a history of um, focus, you know, how the things turn yes. out. And what we are saying is here is a set of tools that you can use to improve the customer experience. I feel like you've given us a, a little behind-the-curtain journey. You know, pe people wouldn't have known a lot of these things even exist, you know, whether it's on your streaming or, or online. We've looked behind the curtain to see how it's done, um, and I think that's eye-opening for people. I think it's fascinating work that you do, and I, I guess it, what's more, in more interesting is when we, when we sit down in five years – what will have happened yeah. in that time. Yeah. It's, it's, an exciting, it's an exciting space you're in, yeah? yeah? You know, another example, you know, it, it came to my mind when you were saying about how uh, people interact with machine learning all the time. So the NIP Group, that's a health insurance company yeah. in Australia, they use our machine learning services. For example, they use Amazon Lex, and that is able to automatically provide responses to customer inquiries because, you know, it's able to do that in a natural language thing. And almost 50% of the queries don't have to go to human agents anymore because Lex is able to handle them. And again, that's a, I guess it's a friction point for some people, the idea of a robot, uh, you know, assistant talking to you. But if it's done right then it shouldn't be a friction, uh, a high friction experience. It should be frictionless that yeah, essentially solves the problem. You don't have a call time. You don't have to wait time. Right. right. You don't have to wait for a human agent to come in. Yeah. And it's doing it automatically. Claims processing, you know, NIPS Group was able to automate their claims processing by using Amazon Textract, which allows you with document processing. Uh, because, you know, you're automatically able to process these claims. And we have seen some other companies like Anthem Group, they have been able to automate 80% of the processing by wow. using these things. So ultimately, you know, whether you're filing claims, filing insurance claims, calling up customer service, all of these are getting powered by these things, which are basically making it a lot more efficient and improving yeah. the customer experience. Making everything we do with our interactions with businesses easier, simpler, and a lot of people probably didn't realise Amazon was was a big part of that, mate. It's fascinating. Um, I appreciate the chat. Um, we could probably talk for hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a great space, and I look forward to seeing what the next five years holds. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Well, there you go. Fascinating. I, I, honestly, I found I found a lot of those conversations fascinating. I found it. Um, a little bit eye-opening. I'll be honest, the Alexa conversation with Prem was um, mind-blowing to think that Alexa does have artificial intelligence in that the things that we do teach it. Um, the things that I do help your Alexa, the things that you do help my Alexa uh, get better and you know be more localized and be smarter at how they react and respond um, without becoming sentient. I think that's all that matters really there, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I really think, I've always thought that Alexa had pretty much the, the better of the three virtual assistants. In Australia, they're not, they don't have that market share like they do in America. That's really just a first-to-market mover thing that Google grabbed. Um, but I think with time, it's a really interesting race, the voice assistant race, especially in Australia. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, the race to space is mind-blowing. I'd always thought about Mars as being the, the goal. But in reality, the moon's the next goal. The moon and, and the new International Space Station are um are the um are the big goal. So yeah, fascinating. Anyway, let me know what you think. If you have views, thoughts, I'd love to hear them. EFTM.com or you can hit me up on socials and um yeah, look forward to being back in the country at the end of the week so I can see my family. And I look forward to talking to you on the EFTM podcast with your calls and questions next week. Right here. Thanks for listening. It might sound crazy what I'm about to say. Triple